those songs were so powerful. Can we just clap our hands just in honor of who God is? It's certainly an honor and a privilege to gather in the house of God. The opportunity to fellowship with other believers is one that we should never take lightly or for granted. God has been good to us, especially in times like these. I do believe it's great for us to be here. Thank you, Pastor Nate Weiss, for sharing your pulpit. I am mind blown at what God has done in and through Coastal Gloucester. When I look at the growth of this campus, I'm absolutely mind blown, and I'm at the edge of my seat in full anticipation of what God will do in and through this campus for his glory. As we're continuing this series in Exodus, we're going to cover a few chapters. We got a lot to cover this morning, so, uh, whew. All right, Exodus chapter 25 through 29. This is, these few chapters is where God shows his love and his holiness to his people in a very interesting and unique way. And so we're going to take some time to read through these chapters. We're going to bounce around from chapter to chapter and verse to verse. Um, we have a few heavy topics that we want to cover. But before we get into that, I want to make my first point known start the message off with my first point, recognizing that God loves you. That's how I want to start this message, letting you know that God loves you. Exodus chapter 25, verse 8. This is what God says. And let them make me a sanctuary that I might dwell in their midst. I'm going to stop right there. That, that verse is extremely touching. Not only because God wants to dwell among his people, but because of who his people are. This is the voice of God speaking to Moses concerning the nation of Israel. The nation of Israel, a nation that was enslaved by the Egyptians for over 400 years, and then God raises up and sends Moses to deliver them. Moses stands before the Pharaoh. He says, let my people go, but Pharaoh hears this and he resists and he rebels but after seeing God's hand at work, there are nine plagues that God sends to consume the land of Egypt. And the Bible says that these are plagues that had never been seen before or ever again since that day. But yet Pharaoh still resists and he still rebels. Then God sends the last and final plague that causes Pharaoh to cave in and let the nation go free. And so the nation gets this news. They pack their bags. They leave Egypt headed for the promised land. They're shouting, they're dancing, they're rejoicing because after 400 years of slavery, they had been free. And God of the universe had fought for them and their prayer was finally being answered. And so this was a moment of rejoicing and celebration as they're making their way toward the promised land. And as they're singing and as they're dancing, they reach the Red Sea. Then they turn around and the same Pharaoh that let them go free has now changed his mind and is pursuing them along with 600 chariots with the intent to kill them all. Now, we hear this and we look back at their time in Egypt. You would think after them seeing all those plagues and seeing the God of the universe fight for them, they turn around and see Pharaoh, they would just say, you know what, this is in God's hands. God's got this. You would think that. But the Bible says as soon as they see Pharaoh coming, the first thing they do is complain to Moses. And they say this in Exodus chapter 14, verse 11. They said to Moses, is it because there are no graves in Egypt that you have taken us away to die in the wilderness? What have you done to us in bringing us out of Egypt? Is not this what we said to you in Egypt? Leave us alone that we may serve the Egyptians. For it would have been better for us to serve the Egyptians than to die in the wilderness. Now, these are the same people that just saw the hand of God at work in the land of Egypt, and yet they complain when times get rough. But God continues to do the impossible at the Red Sea. He opens the Red Sea. They all walk through on dry land. Once they make it through the Red Sea, God closes the sea on all the Egyptians, and they all drown. So now, finally, they are officially free from the Egyptians. Once again, they're singing, they're dancing, they're celebrating as they're looking forward to entering into the land that God promised. Then they find out, all the singing and dancing, only to find out that there's more to the journey. There's more to this process. In order for them to get from where they are to the promised land, they have to go through 
the wilderness. You know, it's dry in the wilderness. There's no food in the wilderness. There's no water in the wilderness. There's no place of rest in the wilderness. So you look at the Red Sea. This takes place, chapter 14. This morning's passage starts Exodus chapter 25. From Exodus 14 to Exodus 25, they're wandering through the wilderness. All they have done is complain. All these chapters from 14 to 25, they have done nothing but grumble and complain. They have done nothing but grumble and complain. They find water in the desert, but the water's bitter. They complain. God sweetens the water. Later on, they're hungry. They complain. God gives them food. Once again, they're thirsty. They complain. God gives them something to drink. From the Red Sea, in chapter 14, all the way up to this morning's passage, this nation has been so ungrateful. This is the nation that looks down on Moses' leadership, and they forget God's power shortly after they experience it. This is a nation of people who seem extremely entitled and just flat-out arrogant. So after all that being said, I want to reread this verse one more time because it blows my mind. Exodus chapter 25, verse 8. This is what God says after hearing all this. And let them make me a sanctuary that I may dwell in their midst. After all that complaining, after all that grumbling, after all that they've put Moses through as a leader, God still has a desire to dwell among his people. Now, now, us as humans, we hear all this stuff that they've been putting Moses through. We hear all this complaining, and the first thing we say is, there's no way I could love people like that. We, we see this, and we say, there's no way in the world I could be around people like this. We read stories and hear about these complaints, and then we'll ask the question, how in the world could these people see God's hand at work in this way and still complain. It blows our minds. We would stand back. We would cut these people off. But the one thing I love about God, he sees all, he hears all, he knows all. One thing that God knew about this nation, though the nation had made it out of Egypt, Egypt had not yet made it out of them. So for 400 years, this nation has been in slavery. Their parents were slaves. Their grandparents were slaves. Their great-grandparents were slaves. So all they knew was disappointment. All they knew was being let down. All they knew was hearing promises that would never be kept. All they knew was being beaten and abused, being constantly in defense mode. This was a nation of broken, worn-out, abused people looking for love, looking for peace, looking for relief in all the wrong places. Some of us understand the life of the Israelites. So some of us understand what the Israelites have gone through. Some of us came in here this morning with secret hurts and secret pains and secret disappointments. Some of us may have come in here wondering if we're alone or abandoned. Some of us may feel like a lot of the prayers we prayed are on a fish hook. And God is just playing with our emotions. And God is just leading us on. And God is just playing games with us. Some of us have made mistakes that have torn our families apart. Some of us have made mistakes that have messed up our bodies and our friendships and the relationships. And we're wondering now if God could love someone like me after all I've done. This was the nation of Israel, a rebellious nation, but God still wanted to dwell in their midst, not because they've done anything right, not because they obeyed God perfectly, but because first they were made in his image and because he chose them to fulfill his plan of redemption centuries later. The interesting thing about this text, right before this text, in the chapter four, we talked about this last week, the nation heard the command of the Lord and they vowed to obey all the Lord commands. Now we're going to see next week, shortly after they made this vow, they did the exact opposite. They rebelled shortly after this vow was made. So God wanted to dwell among his people, 
not only knowing their past and present flaws, but even their future flaws. God wanted to dwell among his people knowing that they would sin against him shortly after they made this vow because he loved them. And God wants you to know that same God sees you, he hears you, and he loves you. Despite the flaws, despite the shortcomings, despite the failures, despite your upbringing, God wants you to know that he loves you. All of us fall short. All of us, we all mess up. We all drop the ball. But if you are in Christ Jesus and you have received him as the Lord of your life, you belong to the Father permanently. So though the nation, they were rebellious, they were still his people. And in the same way, God wants you to know that if you are in Christ, you are still his child. Exodus chapter 25, verse 8. God says, and let them make me a sanctuary that I may dwell in their midst. So God wants to display his love by dwelling among his people. However, God commands them to build him a sanctuary. So as we're reading this text, we're going to see that it teaches that God is not only love, but God is holy. That's my next point. God is holy. Holy is to be set apart. Holy to be set apart. Holiness is a standard displayed through a lifestyle. So God wanted to dwell in the midst of his people, but he couldn't because of sin. Sin is any form of rebellion against God's will. When you look at Genesis chapter 3, verse 8, it implies that man was in perfect communion with God. Mankind experienced the personal presence of God in the Garden of Eden. But once man rebelled, sin separated us from God because God is without sin. So though God wanted to dwell in the midst of his people, he had to dwell in a place without sin. So this sanctuary, known as the tabernacle, had to be built. It was a place designed for a holy and a righteous God to dwell and be worshipped. Right now, we are currently sitting in the sanctuary, a dwelling place of a holy God. And I'm going to come back to that a little later. I'm going to cover that a little bit later. But I want to take some time to focus on the tabernacle. Tabernacle made up of several parts, several sections. But there's one area I want to spend a lot of time on because I believe it's the heart, for lack of a better word, of the tabernacle. So God commands the nation to build him a sanctuary known as the tabernacle. I'm going to read Exodus chapter 25, and we're going to start at verse 10, and I'm going to work my way down from there. Exodus chapter 25, starting at verse 10. This is what God says. They shall make an ark of acacia wood. Two cupids and a half shall be its length. A cupid and a half its breadth. A cupid and a half its height. You shall overlay it with pure gold inside and out. You shall overlay it. You shall make on it a molding of gold around it. You shall cast four rings of gold for it and put them on its four feet. Two rings on the one side of it and the two rings on the other side of it. You shall make poles of acacia wood and overlay them with gold. And you shall put the poles into the rings on the side of the ark to carry the ark by them. The poles shall remain in the rings of the ark. They shall not be taken from it. So God's instructions... Build the most holy object in the tabernacle. That's how he starts. He begins with the most holy object in the tabernacle known as the Ark of the Covenant. Now, I shared a resource with the first service, and I hope it blesses you. The first, uh, there is a resource that I want to share. If you ever want to get some serious understanding of the Ark of the Covenant, serious archaeological facts is some scripture in there, there is a resource, it's a movie called Indiana Jones, <laughs> Raiders of the Lost Ark. Okay? Serious stuff. If you have not seen that, please know I'm kidding. God told them to build the Ark of the Covenant. The Ark. The Ark. What is an Ark? The Ark is a box. It is a container. So when we go back to Genesis chapter 6, we see how God never tells Noah to build a boat or a ship. He says, build a box, build a container. One thing that you're going to see if you ever read that, God gives and he lays out the instructions. A steering wheel was nowhere in the instructions because it was a box. 
There was nothing for Noah to guide the ark. Noah had no way of controlling the ark. When God gave Noah the instructions on how to build the ark, there was nothing included that would give Noah any form of control. Why? Because Noah may have been the lead passenger or he may have served as an architect, but God was the captain. So when we read Genesis chapter 6, 7, 8, and 9, it's very, it's adorable to call it Noah's ark, but it's biblical to call it God's ark. God was the one who steered the ark. God was the one who closed the door. God was the one who set it on the mountain when the storm was over. God was the one who had full control over the ark. So when we see an ark, we see God's complete authority and control. We see God's sovereignty. When we see the shape of an ark, the ark declares that we have no say-so because we are the creation and not the creator. The ark declares that we are not called to understand the instructions, but we're called to submit to the instructions and commands. God commands an ark to be built. And then in verses 20 or 17 through 22, and we're going to read that a little bit later for time's sake, God commands a lid to be placed on top of the ark. One cherubim on one side, one cherub on the other side, they face one another and their wings stretch out to meet right in the middle. Now a cherubim is an angel of worship. That's what went on the lid. A cherubim is an angel of worship. They are made to bow before the Lord and worship at his throne. The Bible teaches, you look through scripture, gives you a whole plethora of angels. So many angels you see throughout scripture. Different types of angels in heaven. There are angels who deliver God's messages to people on the earth. There are angels who fight in war. And then as we just covered, there are angels that are specifically made to worship at the throne of God. So all through scripture, we see that there are different angels with different roles, but the one thing they have in common is worship. They worship through their various roles. So when we see this angel on the lid, we're not only seeing the literal cherubims who worship the throne because there are cherubims that worship at the throne but we're also seeing a representation of all of heaven bowing in worship and submission to the God of the universe one thing I want to point out about angels one thing I want to point out because this is going to reveal the power of God angels are fierce powerful beings fierce powerful beings angels are not the soft looking men with well manicured hands and feet they are not babies who play hide and seek and duck duck coos while flying naked in the clouds they do not shoot people in the behind to make them fall in love angels are fierce powerful beings the bible says anytime an angel would show up in raw form the first thing they would have to say is do not be afraid because the presence of an angel would strike fear in the heart of anyone that encountered them. Because these are powerful beings. In fact, the Bible says in, in 2 Kings chapter 19, the Assyrians were looking to attack the Israelite nation. And God sent one angel to fight for them. This one angel single-handedly slaughtered 185,000 Assyrians at one time. Side note. I couldn't say this in the first service and I didn't have much time, but we got some time now. <laughs> Side note, Matthew chapter 26. The Bible says in the Garden of Eden, Jesus is praying, right? The cops come, the soldiers come to arrest him. Peter, in all his brilliance, that's sarcasm, takes a knife and slices the man's ear off, one of the soldiers. Jesus picks the man's ear up, puts it back on his head, and he turns to Peter and says, don't you know that if I wanted to, I could ask my father to send 12 legions of angels to rescue me and fight for me. Something to point out about that. I just said one angel single-handedly slaughtered 185,000 Assyrians. A legion, one legion, is about 60 to 70,000 soldiers. And Jesus says, I could call 12 of them. You know what that means? Jesus is telling Peter, if I wanted revenge, there aren't enough people on the planet to handle what I got. That's the power of an angel, and that's the power of God that works through an angel. So when we see angels, there is a sense of reverence and awe that we should have because we are seeing the power of God displayed through them. 
And yet, these beings, these powerful beings that bring fear to the average human, bow in submission to the God of the universe. These powerful, fierce beings live to submit and serve the one true and living God. That's the power of God represented in the Ark of the Covenant. So, so far, so far, we see that the Ark represents the authority of God. We see how angels worship at the throne of God on the lid, displayed on the lid of the, of the Ark. So if we see the authority of God, we see the angels bowing in submission, this would mean that the Ark itself represents the throne of God. It represents the throne of God. That's why it was placed in the most sacred part of the tabernacle. So this is why God commands poles to be placed on each side of the ark of the covenant because the poles allowed the people to carry the ark without touching the ark itself because it represented the throne of God. So if any human being any human being, flawed and full of sin, which all of us are, if any human being were to touch the ark, which represented the throne of a sinless God, if any human being with limited knowledge and understanding attempted to guide or assist the ark that represented the throne of a God who needs no counsel or wisdom, it was an insult to the God of the universe. Prime example, because touching, first off, touching the, the ark it declared equality with God, right? So a prime example is in 2 Samuel where the ark was being carried and it was about to be tipped over. And a man tried to come, keep it from falling by touching the ark itself. And the Bible says that God killed him on the spot because his attempt to touch the ark was a declaration of equality with God. He was touching the ark declaring that he deserved as much glory as God, and God shares no glory. This is the same, it's funny, when you look at this, that's the same declaration that Lucifer made in Isaiah 14, starting at verse 13. Lucifer, he says, I will ascend into heaven. I will exalt my throne above the stars of God. I will also sit on the mount of the congregation on the farthest sides of the north. I will ascend above the heights of the clouds. I will be like the most high. That's Isaiah chapter 14, verses 13 and 14. It's funny because the very next verse, Lucifer, who's now known as Satan, was cast out of heaven straight into hell with a quickness. In fact, it was so quick that Jesus says in Luke chapter 10, I saw Satan cast out of heaven like lightning. Lightning is quick. It's, it's fast. It'll come so quick you don't even know if you saw it or not. So when this man touches the Ark of the Covenant in 2 Samuel, he dies just as quick as Satan was cast out of heaven because touching the Ark was demonic. Touching the Ark was the devil's way of retaliation. It was the devil's way of using God's creation to rebel against him and insult his holiness. It was a representation of God's reign and rule as king. It was also a representation that God is completely sinless. So again, it was placed in the most sacred part of the tabernacle. And then outside of the tabernacle or outside of that section of the tabernacle where the ark was set is the next section. I'm going to cover a few other areas. So we have the ark of the covenant. And then right outside the ark of the covenant, God commands them. And he continues by commanding them to build this table of bread. And I'm going to read that in Exodus 25 starting at verse 23. Exodus 25 starting at verse 23. God says, You shall make a table of acacia wood. Two cupids shall be its length, a cupid its breadth, and a cupid and a half its height. And you shall overlay it with pure gold and make it a molding of gold around it. You shall make a rim around it, a hand breadth wide, and molding of gold around the rim. And you shall make it for the four rings of gold and fasten the rings on the four corners at its four legs. Close to the frame the ring shall lie. 
as holders for the poles to carry, the table. You shall make the poles of acacia wood and overlay them with gold, and the table shall be carried with these. And you shall make its plates and dishes for incense and its flagons and bowls with which to pour the drink offerings, and you shall make them of pure gold. And you shall set the bread of the presence on the table before me regularly. So we have the Ark of the Covenant. Right outside the Ark of the Covenant, on the right-hand side, is the table used for bread or the table of bread. Bread was used for fellowship. Something to point out about this, there were 12 loaves of bread on the table representing 12 tribes of Israel. You know, each tribe was a bit different. Each tribe had a different style and different culture. But despite their differences, the one thing they had in common was that all of them were part of God's chosen people. Here we are, thousands of years later, here at Coastal Church. Each of us come with different backgrounds, different stories, different testimonies, different cultures. But the one thing we have in common is that if you're in Christ Jesus, you are a part of God's family. You are a part of God's chosen people. Those who are in Christ, according to 1 Peter chapter 2, are called a royal priesthood. It was the priests who ate the bread in the tabernacle. They feasted on the bread representing a time of fellowship with the Lord. Not only was this bread to be feasted on, but God commanded them to constantly replace the bread with fresh bread. There was never to be stale bread in the tabernacle. Now, with all that being said, I have a few questions. After hearing about the Ark of the, the Covenant, hearing the holiness of God, and now we're hearing about this table of bread. After hearing about God's command to keep that bread fresh, my question to you, if you were to take time to examine yourself, how often are you in fellowship with the Lord? When you look at the bread in your life, is it fresh or is it stale? When was the last time you took some time out to read your Bible and feast on God's word? How often are you in fellowship with other believers serving in a ministry or a mission? That's how we fellowship with the Lord. So God not only wanted us to see him as a holy king, but he wanted us to see him as a holy king who wanted fellowship with us. You look at verses 31 through 40. I'm not going to read it for time's sake. 31 through 40, it tells us there, that there's a lampstand directly across from the table of bread. So when you walk in the room, you'll see the table of bread on the right side. And then you'll see the lampstand on the left side. The lampstand, it has so many representations. That we would be here for hours if I went through that it represents the spirit of God in the throne room but it also represents God's call God's command God's desire for his people to be a light because when you look at the lampstand the lampstand was the only source of light in the entire tabernacle but it had to be maintained in order for the light to keep burning it had to be maintained Exodus chapter 27 verse 20 through 21 it says, you shall command the people of Israel that they bring to you pure beaten olive oil for the light that a lamp may regularly be set up to burn. In the tent of meeting outside the veil that is before the testimony, Aaron and his son shall tend it from evening to morning before the Lord. It shall be a statute forever to be observed throughout their generations by the people of Israel. So the priests would come in and they would make their way into the tabernacle, and they would make sure that the light had enough oil to keep it burning. Again, the right side is the table of bread, the left side is the lampstand. So when you put all of this together, we're seeing that fellowship with God, feasting on God's word, prayer, fellowship with believers, serving in a ministry and a mission, because these priests kept coming to the house of God. They, keep, they kept coming to serve. That was their ministry. When you see all this, that's how the light kept burning. So us constantly in fellowship with God, feasting on God's word, prayer, fellowship with others, it keeps our light burning in a dark world. 
That's how all of this comes together. So then we go to chapters 26 and 27. It covers the courtyard of the tabernacle where the tent that covers the ark and the table of bread and the lampstand was built. It tells us that there's a veil that separates the sections of the tabernacle. It tells us about the courtyard where the bronze altar was built. And then lastly, tells us of the curtain that was built on the outside of the tabernacle, separating it from everything and everyone else. This is the tabernacle. This is the dwelling place of God, a place that represented the holiness of God. God commanded his people to build him a tabernacle, but I want you to see something. Notice the order of directions because he starts in chapter 25. Notice the order of the directions that God gives because when most of us look at the tabernacle, if any of us were to try to describe the tabernacle, most of us would start on the outside. We would talk about the tent or the courtyard. We would talk about the curtain that separates everything, and then we would work our way in and talk about the Ark of the Covenant. If somebody were to talk about the tabernacle, they would say it's a big tent, it has these curtains, it has all this stuff, and that's the place where the Ark of the Covenant is. Most of the time, we don't talk about the Ark of the Covenant first. We don't talk about the table of bread or the lampstand first because those are things that can't be seen. You know, we as humans have a tendency to focus on what can be seen. But when you look at God's directions, he starts from the inside. He starts from the inside and he works his way out. The first thing that God focuses on is the heart, for lack of a better word, the heart of the tabernacle, the innermost parts of the tabernacle, the Ark of the Covenant, and then everything else on the outside was a reflection of the purity on the inside. So all the gold, all the silver, all the bronze, all the wood, and the beautiful colors of fabric was a reflection of the purity of the innermost parts of the tabernacle. When you look at the border of the tabernacle, it was a curtain that separated the entire tabernacle from the rest of the nation. And it was made of white linen. White is the color of purity. But it also was a reflection of the purity on the inside. Many of us came to church this morning knowing all the right things to say. Knowing how to put on that Christian front knowing how to talk to other Christians. Some of us grew up in church, so we just know what to say. We know what to do. We know the order of service. We know what comes after what. But when I read this passage, I'm reminded that though we may be eloquent of speech and we may know all the right things to say, God is looking at the innermost parts. God is looking at the heart. Some of us, we go to small group and we can answer every question. We know how to Lead it out. We know the right things to say, but God is looking at the heart. Some of us may have come here with so many different forms of influence in our communities, in our neighborhoods, in our jobs. Some of us came in here with a very impressive resume, but God is looking at the heart. God is using the structure of this tabernacle to teach us that everything about us, everything about ourselves is a reflection of the heart's condition. It is the abundance of the heart posture. Every decision we make reveals the desires of our heart. So if you were to once again examine yourself after hearing all this stuff about the ark, after hearing about the holiness of God represented in the tabernacle, and after hearing about the angels who bow before the throne of God in submission, my question once again to you, what areas in your life are not yet submitted to God? What areas in your heart don't line up with your profession of faith? All of us in here, all of us, are wrestling with some type of sin. A sin that may hinder our walk with the Lord. All of us have an area in our lives where we want full control. An area where we want to steer and guide the arc of our lives. What, what is that thing in your life? What, what is that? Is it, is it finances? Is, is it forgiveness? Is it, is it your work ethic? Is, is it greed, lust, or jealousy? God wants to purify our hearts so that our heart posture lines up with our profession of faith. 
tabernacle. It represented God's love and the holiness of God. But it also represented a place of worship. A place of worship. God demands holy worship. That's the next point. God demands holy worship. I just spent a lot of time covering the sections of the tabernacle. I couldn't cover everything for time's sake. We'd be here for hours and days and weeks if I had to do that. But God gave them specific instructions how he wanted the tabernacle to be built. Specific instructions on how he wanted the tabernacle to be built. That means that he gave specific instructions on how he wanted to be worshipped. Specific instructions. I'm not getting one amen except for them babies. <laughs> them babies are saying amen. I love it. I love it. God gives instructions on how to be worshipped. To worship. To worship is to bow. That's why the angels on the lid of the ark in the covenant were bowing because to worship is to bow in submission. Worship is a declaration of devotion. This means that worship, it goes beyond the songs we sing on Sunday morning. The songs we sing, they're, they're, they're a form of worship, but worship is a lifestyle. It's a lifestyle of submission. This building, Coastal Church, is the gathering place of believers. The first thing we need to know about this place it's a holy place. This place is not like, it's not like 7-Eleven. This ain't Wawa. This is not like the fast food restaurant down the street. That's why when you look at the tabernacle, it's surrounded by a curtain to separate the tabernacle from everything else because God wants us to know that there is no place like the house of God. And this is, if this is how God feels about his house, how much more does he feel this way about his people. And because there is no place like the house of God, the house of God is not to resemble the things of the world. Again, how much more does God feel this way about his people? Because those who are in Christ are tabernacles where God dwells. We are not to resemble the things of the world. You know, the world, they love to worship. This world is full of worshipers. The world worships. They may not worship the true and living God, but they worship and they honor materialistic things. They worship themselves. They worship temporary things of this world, but God demands holy worship, worship that is set apart from this world. Worship is intimacy with God. It's a lifestyle of putting God above ourselves. It's honoring God by putting the needs of others above our own. According to Philippians chapter 2, worship is celebrating the finished work of Jesus, giving us access to the throne of grace. This is the type of worship that the world can't grasp. It's the type of worship that the world resists because our flesh wants to be put first. Our flesh wants to be adored. Our flesh wants to share God's glory. That's the mindset of the world. And there are churches that are embracing this mindset and this heart of the world by embracing certain lifestyles that don't line up with scripture. But God demands worship that is set apart from the world. In Exodus chapter 28 and 29, we're told that even those who walk in the tabernacle are to come in a certain way. Exodus chapter 28, and I'm gonna read the first few verses. I'm getting ready to close soon. Exodus chapter 28, reading the first few verses. This is what God says concerning the priest. Now this is what you shall do to them to consecrate them, that they may serve as priests. Take one bull of the herd and two rams without blemish, and unleavened bread, unleavened cakes mixed with oil, and unleavened wafers smeared with oil. You shall make them a fine wheat flour. You shall put them in one basket and bring them in the basket and bring the bull and the two rams. You shall bring Aaron and his sons to the entrance of the tent of meeting and wash them with water. Then you shall take the garments and put on Aaron the coat of the robe of the ephod and the ephod and the breastpiece and gird him with skillfully woven band of the ephod. You shall set the turban on his head and put the holy crown on the turban. You shall take the anointing oil and pour it on his head and anoint him. 
You shall bring his sons and put the coats on them. And you shall gird Aaron and his sons with sashes and bind caps on them. And the priesthood shall be theirs by, the, by a statute forever. Thus you shall ordain Aaron and his sons. So we're seeing the first priesthood. Again, 1 Peter chapter 2 calls all believers in Christ a royal priesthood. Now before I move forward, am I saying, because that was a lot of stuff they had to wear. Am I saying that you need to come to church wearing all this stuff? I don't even know where to find that. I don't know where to buy that. I don't know who to ask to make that stuff. So I'm not saying that you need to make that, or I'm not saying that you need to wear that. But the, the point is, is that the priest came into the house of God with a prepared heart and a prepared mind for worship. They came ready to give sacrifice. They came ready to give. And overall, they came in reverence, and they came in full anticipation to encounter the presence of God. So this means that when we come to church on Sunday, this is not a task to check off the list. When we come to church on Sunday, it is not something to get done and over with so we can move on with the rest of our day. I love football. I don't know who's going to win this Super Bowl. Well, I'm preaching for Nate, so go, go 49ers. <laughs> I don't know what's going to happen. And as much as I love football, the house of God comes first. Worship comes first. Serving in a ministry comes first. Then come the fun stuff. That's the sacrifice. Coming to the house of God is the opportunity to worship the God of the universe in the company of fellow believers. So we're called to come in reverence. I want to encourage you as you're preparing for church, whether it's the night before or on your way to service, I want to encourage you to take some time, set some time aside to reflect on the goodness of God. How has God been good to you this week? How have you experienced the love and the holiness and the wisdom and the power of God this week? What are some areas in your heart that God has worked on this week? I want you to take some time to reflect on the goodness of God before coming to church. So that way when you get here, you enter into his gates with thanksgiving and into his courts with praise. This is a holy God who wants us to come into his house in reverence, in honor, with a heart and mind prepared for worship. So, so far, so far we've covered the love of God. We've covered the holiness of God. One thing about these two is we think that they're two totally different things. They're opposite sides or opposite sides of the spectrum. My last point, God's love and holiness go hand in hand. God's love, God's holiness goes hand in hand. I want to go back to Exodus chapter 25 as I'm preparing to close. And I'm going to read verse 16. I spend a lot of time focusing on the Ark of the Covenant because it was the heart of the tabernacle. It represented the throne of God. Exodus chapter 25 verse 16. God says, and you shall put into the Ark the testimony that I shall give you. So before this verse... Before this verse, God had just told them how the ark should look, how to build it. The ark was a box, right? The ark was a box with a lid on it. Based on this verse, if it's a box, it was not supposed to be empty. It's not supposed to be an empty box. Something was supposed to go in the box. What was that supposed to be? It was the law that God gave Moses for the people. It was the rod that budded with flowers. That was supposed to be placed in the ark. Manna was supposed to be placed in a bowl and then placed in the ark. When you look at all the stories in the background of all these things that go into the ark, God gave Moses commandments for his people to obey and they broke all of them. They're wandering through the wilderness. They get hungry. God gives them manna. They're ungrateful. They still complain. So when God looks into the ark, and he sees the law. He sees the manna. All he's seeing is a reminder of our sinful ways. When he sees the law, all he's seeing is how disobedient and rebellious and ungrateful we are. All he sees is how deserving of his wrath we are. One more thing to point out about the Ark of the Covenant. God commanded a lid to be placed on the covenant. And I talked about this earlier. But the name of that lid 
was called the mercy seat. The name of that lid was called the mercy seat. And I'm going to read these last few verses, Exodus 25, starting at verse 17. This is what God says regarding the mercy seat. You shall make a mercy seat of pure gold. Two cupids and a half shall be its length, a cupid and a half its breadth. And you shall make two cherubims of gold, of hammered work shall you make them on the two ends of the mercy seat. Make one cherub on the one end and a cherub on the other end. One piece with the mercy seat shall you make the, on the cherub on the two ends. Verse 20. The cherub shall spread out their wings above, overshadowing the mercy seat with their wings, their faces one to another. Toward the mercy seat shall they face, or shall the faces of the cherubim be. And you shall put the mercy seat on the top of the ark. And in the ark you shall put the testimony that I shall give you. There I will meet you, or I will meet with you. And from above the mercy seat, from between the two cherubims that are on the ark of the testimony, I will speak with you about all that I will give you in commandment, for the people of Israel. There was an event, a special day, called the Day of Atonement. The Day of Atonement was a day where these consecrated priests of Exodus chapter 28 and 29 would kill an innocent animal as a sacrifice for the sin of the nation. When they would kill this animal, they would catch its blood and then they would take it to the Holy of Holies where the Ark of the Covenant was. And then they would pour the blood on the mercy seat. Now, before the blood was sprinkled, God would look down and see a reminder of man's sin when he saw the law and the manna. But now that the innocent blood covers the mercy seat, he now sees man through the lens of innocence. Because the animal did nothing wrong. The animal did not sin. Blood comes from the heart. When the heart is pure, the blood is pure. When the heart is contaminated, the blood is contaminated. And so God would take an innocent animal and allow its innocent blood to cover the mercy seat. So now God sees innocence. This would happen every year. This would happen annually. Something to point out about making sacrifices, serving as a priest was a very dirty job. It was a hard job because, you know, animals are fully aware, most animals, are aware when danger is approaching. So this means that killing animals for the sacrifice wasn't always easy because many of those animals would resist. They would fight. They would bite. They would run. There were times where multiple priests would have to come and gather and hold that animal down because the animal knew that something is about to happen to them that they didn't deserve. But unlike the animal... We deserve God's wrath. Unlike the animal, we deserve judgment. We were made in the image of a holy and a righteous God, but, but we rebelled against God, trying to live life on our own terms. We sought to worship ourselves, but our rebellion, it brought sin into the world, separating us from a holy and a righteous God, and it put us in the place to deserve nothing but his wrath. But God still loved us. We were a rebellious people, but God still loved us and wanted to dwell among us. So he sent his son. His son tabernacled among us. His son dwelt among us, and we beheld his glory, the glory of the only begotten son of the father, full of grace and truth. He lived the consecrated life that the priests were called to live. You know, the priests, they were supposed to stand in the holy of holies, without sin in their heart, but because they're still humans with a sin nature, they still sin. They still fell short. But, but Jesus, God the Son, lived on this earth a completely sinless life, even while being tempted at all points. He lived a completely devoted life to the Father. He lived a life of holy worship to the Father. But, but, but we still deserve God's wrath. The Father could still see the sin from his throne. But Jesus, who is the high priest, who lived the life that the high priest could not live, he is the high priest. He didn't look for an animal to sacrifice. He didn't look for an animal to kill. He didn't look for an animal to hold down and slaughter. But he himself laid down. 
He himself laid down as the sacrifice. And like the animal at the tabernacle, Jesus too was roped up. Jesus too was beaten. Jesus too had to bleed. They placed a beam of wood on his back and they led him to the place of death. Remember, 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 killing an animal wasn't easy because animals would fight. Animals would kick. They would bite. They would try to run. But, but Jesus was led to the place of death without kicking. Jesus was led to the place of death without fighting, without any resistance, without running. He went willingly. And that's why he says in John chapter 10, no one takes my life, but I lay it down. Jesus served as the better tabernacle, the better priest, the better sacrifice. He took the penalty that we deserve by dying on the cross for our sins and shedding his innocent blood for the guilty. He was buried. But unlike the animals at the tabernacle, Jesus bodily rose from the dead three days later, defeating sin and death. Again, before the blood of the animals was shed on the mercy seat, God would look down and see the reminder of man's sin when he saw the law and the manna. But the innocent blood covered the mercy seat, so he would see man through the, the lens of innocence. And in the same way, the blood of Jesus covers all those who surrender to him as Lord. And so the Father no longer sees us as unrighteous, but we're made righteous through the innocent blood of Christ. So when you surrender to Jesus, you are saved from the penalty of sin. And though sin may have influence, it will no longer have dominion. You know, one thing about the tabernacle, they had to keep taking it down and putting it up as they traveled. But now here we are in Christ. Now we are the tabernacle in which God dwells. When you are saved, the Holy Spirit comes in and dwells in you and guides you in the path of righteousness. That is the love and the holiness of God going hand in hand. God is holy. God is righteous. The last thing I want to point out before we go, I'm done now. The tabernacle.